Well, after seven weeks of study, walking verse by verse through the book of Malachi, we finally today reach the heart of the, of the message. Today and next week, we will talk about the idea of returning to God. The people of God need to return to God. This is really the pinnacle point of the whole book of Malachi, as I've mentioned throughout. And remember once more the interesting fact that so much of this book is a direct quotation from God. Today we will be hearing what God has said. And let's get it right into it from chapter 3, verse 7. Chapter 3, verse 7 of Malachi says this. God is speaking. And he says, From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will a man rob God? You are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, so that there may be food in my house, and test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. Then I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts. All the nations will call you blessed, for you shall be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. Your words have been arrogant against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? You've said, it is vain to serve God, and what profit is it that we have kept his charge, and that we have walked in mourning before the Lord of hosts? So now we call the arrogant blessed. Not only are the doers of wickedness built up, but they also test God and escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord gave attention and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him. For those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name, they will be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I prepare my own possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. So you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. So, as is the formula throughout Malachi, we have here in verse 7 a statement from God followed by a somewhat cynical question from the people, which leads to a passage wherein God answers their question at some length. Look with me at verse 7, where God says, From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, How shall we return? Let's unpack this verse. First of all, who and what is God referring to when He says, from the days of your fathers you have turned aside? Well, ultimately, God is referring to the seemingly infinite cycle of His people straying and then returning and then straying and returning again, such as what happens no less than seven times in those, remember, ups and downs that we've been talking about in the book of Judges. We're not going to go through our Old Testament review today, but that's what was happening there, those seven ups and downs. So he's referring to that type of thing in a, in a large scale, but on a smaller scale, God may have also been referring to their literal fathers, as in like 
their dads. Zechariah was a prophet during the time of Ezra, basically a generation before Malachi, and so we should note that God had actually said these words recently. In Zechariah 1.3, God had already said, return to me and I will return to you. And to whom was God saying this through Zechariah? Well, he was saying it to Malachi's dad and to all the dads from his generation. That's why in Malachi, God says, from the days of your fathers, you've been turning aside. And God says, this next generation should be aware that to your fathers, I said these same words, return to me and I will return to you. Now, you might reasonably assume that their fathers probably didn't listen, but in fact, we know that they actually heeded this word of the Lord from Zechariah and that the fathers of Malachi's generation had repented, which is why Jerusalem was still standing. But now it's the the next generation, and uh, here we go again. They are straying again. Sound familiar? Notice also that God equates turning aside from His instructions with with turning aside from Him. He says, you have turned aside from my statutes, and so therefore what you need to do is return to me. Do you get that? Implied is the fact that when we turn from the ways of God, we turn from God Himself. Or perhaps the proper order would be that when we turn from God, we turn from His ways. It turns out that as believers, the way we live is generally an accurate indicator of our proximity with God. When we are away from God, we do not obey or follow Him. Obedience is a function of our relationship with God. In our text today, the problem is defined as a failure to obey. But what is the beginning of the solution? Is it to simply straighten up and behave? No, that is not step one. Step one is to return to God. This is very important. The rest of our study of Malachi will be about doing, but the step before doing is being. And the problem of not being who we should be is solved by first returning to God. Remember it this way. The first step to renewal is relational. The first step to renewal is relational. More specifically, Step one is hearing God. Those who have strayed need to hear God today. Those who are not keeping His statutes, those who are not living in a way that honors God all day, every day, need to hear God say, return to me. But you see, if we are anything like the people in Malachi's audience, and we are, that means many of us are thinking this is for somebody else. Your thought is, I'm sure someone needs to hear God say return, but not me, pastor. I'm all good with God. Well, let's just make sure about that, shall we? We're looking at some of the most profound words in all of the Bible. It's just just incredible that God, the creator of all, says, return to me and I will return to you. Why didn't he just say, Return to me, and I will return to you. And yet the people in the original audience apparently do not even stop to ponder for a moment the miracle of this undeserved promise. Instead, they immediately ask their cynical question, how shall we return? 
I really don't think it's reading into the text to take these types of responses as cynical questions. Maybe I'm wrong, but to me it seems that when the people said, how shall we return, what they really meant was, since we have not strayed, we don't need to return. What have they been saying up to this point? They had been blaming their unfavorable situation on God as if they deserved better. Their attitude is clear in our text today. It was clear in our text last week. Remember their previous question, where is the God of justice? And God's answer was basically, oh, you don't even, you don't even want to see my justice because at this point, you're the ones who will be burned by it. Last week, I said the question was not sarcastic. But I do think these questions are mostly cynical and arrogant. See, this was their problem throughout the book. They were limping along, weak in their faith, and yet they thought they were cool with God. They showed up to church. They even did some good stuff in the community now and then. Maybe they even went on a mission trip. I've been on those. They threw some coins in the box at the temple, they sang the songs. They offered their sacrifices, sort of. They still believed in God. And yet they were so very far away from Him. But worse, they didn't even know it. And so with hard hearts and a self-righteous attitude, they struggled here to even comprehend why God would say to them, return to me and I will return to you. Instead of being blown away by a God ready to take them back, their insincere response is this, how shall we return? It's kind of like saying, what do we do this time, God? Maybe they thought they were covered by grace or elected to salvation in such a way that they felt they had a license to sin. Maybe they thought nothing mattered besides their ticket to heaven. Well, we know where we're going, so. They were the chosen ones, after all. Whatever the case, it seems most of them just couldn't hear or accept what God was saying in His call for repentance. My point is that for those who could not hear this call from God, there was little hope. For those who didn't get it, that it was for them. And the same is true in this congregation right here, right now. The rest of this message will mean little to you if you do not actually hear God, not me, but God, say, Return to me, and I will return to you. And when you do hear God say these words in a personal way, a desire to obey will be produced in you. At this point, the path forward becomes very specific. Now, see, it starts with a spiritual moment when you hear God. It starts with the relationship. But the next steps in returning to God are always very practical. Hearing God is a huge key, but is only beginning. And I know this because even though this question from the people is cynical, once again, God answers it anyway. So the question is this, how shall we return? And God's first answer is this, number one, stop stealing from me. Verses 8 through 12. Um, can, we just, can we go back to the spiritual part? You know, like where we just sort of need to relationally agree with God and think about His willingness to take us back. Because I was really cool with that part, but now we're going to talk about money? Right. The people say, how shall we return? And God says this in verse 8, will a man rob God? How shall we return? Will a man rob God? 
Yet you're robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. Pretty simple. You are cursed with a curse for you're robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. And test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. Then I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts. All the nations will call you blessed, for you shall be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. Why does it seem strange that money is the first thing God brings up in answer to this question about how to return? We all know the church needs revival today. Here we have one of the primary passages of Scripture about revival or the spiritual renewal of God's people. And the first thing we're told to do is not to pray or to fast or to spend uh, more time reading the Bible, but instead it's to give God more money. What could it mean? We all tend to think there are more important things to God than money, right? Only preachers and churches want our money, not God. Isn't that kind of what people say? But whose words are these in Malachi? Remember, this is all direct quotation from God. These are His exact words. Maybe you thought your giving patterns were way down the list in terms of what God really wants to change about your life. But right here, He's the one who brings up money first. Not me. Now, what if God brings up money first for a reason? I'm just saying, what if? What if this is the first thing God would say to wayward Christians in America? How shall we return? What if nothing is more important? Or what if nothing stands in the way of revival more than this one thing? What if perhaps the most Christian nation on earth, which is also the richest nation on earth, is not experiencing the return of God because of a disobedience in the areas of tithes and offerings? What if we were to hear God call us to repentance and revival, particularly in the American church today? And what if we asked God how we should kickstart it? And what if the very first thing God would say are the exact words of our text? God says, you're robbing me. If you wish to return to me, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Let me be more direct and just say it. For many believers in this room, tithing is the first thing you need to get straight if you want to return to God. Why? Maybe because as 1 Timothy 6.10 tells us, the love of money is often the root of many kinds of evil in our lives. Regardless of the reason, the fact is this is the first thing God brings up in answer to the question, how shall we return? Now, in case you're not aware, the word tithe is sort of an old English word, and it means tenth, like one-tenth of the total amount. A tithe is a fraction, and of course, one-tenth is also the same as 10%. Throughout the Old Testament, God not only commands that His people contribute a tithe, but actually says that the first tenth of what His people earned already belongs to Him. Again, God asked for the first tenth, not the last tenth if there happens to be any left. By the way, if the first tenth belonged to God in the Old Testament, did it somehow cease to belong to Him in the New Testament? If the first tenth of the income of our spiritual forefathers belonged to God, when did God say that exactly changed? Now, the Bible is clear that for the people of God, who are the family of God, which is now the church of God, the first tenth of all that we earn belongs to God. That is why you're actually robbing Him when you keep it. When you refuse to give back that first 10%, you're robbing God of what He has declared is actually already His. 
Now, in case you want to try to say this was part of the ceremonial law, which no longer applies specifically to us, you might want to note that the principle of the tithe predates the law of God given through Moses. The tithe goes all the way back to Abraham, at least. As long as there has been a set-apart people of God, a people of faith, at least since Abraham, the first 10% of what they earned belonged to him, and they donated it to be used for God's work on earth. Where did they give their tithe? They gave it to spiritual leaders who were entrusted to use it, both to provide for themselves and to provide for the work of God. It seems that the tithe has been expected from the family of faith since Abraham, if not before. Why do I say if not before? Because if you read the story of Abraham and Melchizedek, when the first tithe was given that we know about, you'll see that Abraham just seemed to know this is what you do. It's always good to remember the Bible is not exhaustive. Abraham seemed to know to give a tithe, and we know that that's what he did, and that when he did, God blessed him for it. Eh, well, what did Abraham know? Well, seriously, what did he know? How did he know it? Maybe we should learn from Abraham, a person to whom God actually spoke verbally, and a person who just seemed to know to give a tithe to God. Maybe he's a good example. Maybe he knew more than some of our modern seminary professors. Some of you get that. Again, tithe means tenth or ten percent. A tithe is not a reference to whatever you would like to give, but a reference to the first ten percent of everything you earn. God says you can keep ninety percent, but the first ten percent is mine. This has been the case for the people of God for at least four thousand years. But yes, I'm aware that some scholarly types today are saying the tithe no longer applies. Many are now teaching from the pulpit that the tithe was only a temple tax, and since we no longer have a temple, there's no more tithe. What did Abraham know, after all, long before the temple? You know what I want to say to people who teach that the tithe no longer applies? I want to say this, good luck with that. Or I want to say, let me know how that works out for you and your church. Because I don't think it's going to work in your favor or in God's favor or, frankly, in the favor of the people. You're not doing anybody any favors. By the way, does grace demand less than the law or more? Look to the Sermon on the Mount for an answer to that question. Jesus called for more, not less. The difference between law and grace lies in the motive and also in the spiritual power to obey. Today we tithe in response to the forgiveness of Christ. We do so by the power of the Holy Spirit. How much more should we tithe in the new covenant than Abraham did in the old covenant? As forgiven people, cleansed by the blood of Jesus, shall we give less than the remnant of Judah we're commanded to give? Here in Malachi? I, for one, have not given less since I was a small boy. And I can tell you that God has blessed me just as he said he would. Some of us were taught to tithe at a young age. Thank you, mom and dad. Gave us a $1 allowance a week. Choose to be a lot more than it is now, but 10 cents in the plate every Sunday. And I learned young. Makes it a little easier. I understand. It's hard when you've never done it. It's basically seems insane if you've never done it. Are you kidding? Are you serious? Are you, ser are you serious right now? I understand. But probably nobody would say that to God, right? You might say to the preacher or the church, you wouldn't say it to God. 
I mean, how dare God ask me for 10%, right? We wouldn't do that. And remember that God also promises incredible blessings if we are faithful in giving the whole tithe, but what do we get for 9%? I mean, you can read. The promise in our text specifically mentions that the blessing comes when we give the whole tithe. Now listen, if you do not claim the name of Christ or believe that this is the Word of God that we're studying, or if you're not saved by grace through faith in Him, then do not think for one second that I am trying to get your money. Please, keep it. God asked for His people to tithe, not just anyone. So, are you just anyone, or are you His people? Think about this. God has not asked for 10% from those who are not His. He doesn't ask for this from the whole world. He only asks for a tithe from those who are His chosen people. And how do we become His people? By grace through faith in Christ. So today, we Christians are the ones who are robbing God, not the rest of the world. And we're the ones who will not actually return to God until we bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Notice our text mentions more than tithes. It says tithes and offerings. Do you know that if you add up the Israelites' tithes with the special offerings they were required to give, their actual minimum required giving was about 23%. Now, we have not been asked to give to those same special offerings because those have more to do with the sacrificial system and the feasts and the religious practices that Jesus fulfilled. But the point is that even though we think 10% sounds like a lot, the Israelites actually were required to give about 23%. Just something to keep in mind. Verse 9 says, They are cursed with a curse because they are robbing God. So, while we could spend some time on this negative motivation, let's move on to verse 10 where God says, Bring the whole tithe in the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. And test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not, open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. The storehouse, by the way, was inside the temple where the priests made decisions about how all of these tithes and offerings would be used for the work of God. Much of what was given was used to provide for the priests and their families. And this was as God designed it from the beginning. The priests were not to have their own fields or work outside jobs, but were to be provided for by the people. Something also taught in the New Testament in regard to pastors, by the way. Oh, that's in there? Yes, it's in there. In fact, if you think about it, providence for pastors must be one of the reasons Jesus reaffirmed that the tithe should not be neglected, even in the age of the New Testament church. How else would pastors be paid? Wait, Jesus affirmed the tithe? Yep, he did. I don't have time to show you that today, but he did. And take note that tithing is the only area in which God says to test him. The only area. In fact, most, all the rest of the time, it's a bad thing to do. But in this area, he says, test me. Go ahead and experiment, God says. Give your 10% and see. If you don't wind up better, better off. Is that not the gist of what God says here when he promises overflowing blessings? Some would say, oh, he's talking about spiritual blessings. Really? Nah. Let's be real. God is clearly talking about a blessing in kind, like a return on an investment, a blessing that's in keeping with the gift, and then some. Now, it isn't like if, if I give 10% today, I'll get a check in the mail for 11% tomorrow but rather that over time, 
Did you hear that? Over time and with consistency in tithing, I will receive back overflowing material blessings from God. That is exactly what God is promising here. I've heard people say, and I probably even said myself, that the offering plate is not like a slot machine. But I've been thinking about this some more. And you know what? It actually kind of is like a slot machine. I mean, hang in there for a minute. Think about this. What did God say? He promised an overflowing return on your investment in His kingdom. And so, while I wouldn't encourage you to gamble with your money in any other way, if you want to gamble a little bit with God, I'd say go ahead. Someone will probably clip that out of my sermon and say that I'm preaching the so-called prosperity gospel, which is a heresy. But see, that's one of our biggest problems in the church today. We're overreacting to errant teaching until we can't even talk about the truth that is underneath what false teachers are twisting. I'm not twisting anything. God says, test me in this. Should we not do what He asks us to do? He's not saying He's going to give us back immediately exactly what we gave or even more than we gave. He is saying that at some point in response to your faithful giving, tithing, the floodgates of heaven will open and God will pour out a blessing in kind until those blessings overflow. Now, doesn't that sound, kind of sound like uh, winning the jackpot on a slot machine? Did anybody else open floodgates, pouring out, overflowing? Now, for the record, I've never played a slot machine in my life. Uh, and I, I, I doubt I ever will, but I've seen them on TV. <laughs> and I've seen that people put just a little bit in, and sometimes the return overflows, right? They may have to wait a bit. Uh, they don't know when it's coming. But when it comes, it overflows. Now, here's where the analogy breaks down. Overall, slot machines take more than they give, or else the casino would go out of business. Hello, is this on? Good to know. Good to remember that. But this is not the case with God. When God decides to bless you for your faithfulness and tithing, your return will always be greater than your investment. And there's no limit because, you know, it's God. So don't be afraid to look for the floodgates to open in God's timing if you tithe. I can tell you many stories, many stories. Those who are faithful with finances are given more finances with which to be faithful. God's a wise investor. He knows where to put his money. It's a clear teaching of Scripture. I know some of you don't like my slot machine analogy. Uh, I'll I'll receive your emails with grace, but you are probably not my primary audience right now, are you? (laughs) Right? You already do this. There are all kinds of people in this room, and so if you are new to this giving thing, I encourage you to keep putting the whole tithe into the slot machine every week and see if God does not eventually pour out blessings into your life, blessings that will include material providence. I'm not the one who said to test God in this. He said it himself. Beyond that, I know it's true from repeated experimentation. Now, by the way, today we're not dealing with everything the Bible says about tithing and giving. There are much higher motivations to be considered, such as what you would find in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, for example. But what I'm dealing with here is the text we have come to on this day, and in this text, God says, test me and see. 
What else can we learn from our text? Verses 11 and 12 tell us about even more blessings that will come if we're obedient in the area of tithing. God says, I will rebuke the devourer. This is probably a reference to swarms of locusts, which were known to devour their crops, which was their livelihood. But this could also refer to their enemies who would sometimes burn their crops. Or more figuratively, this word can also be a reference to Satan, whose scripture says, like a roaring lion, seeks those whom he may devour. I think God is not specific about the devourer here because he means there will be protection from all these different types of devourers for those who are faithful in tithing. This protection is not automatic or absolute, but it's a principle that is generally true. Going on in verse 12, God says, all the nations will call you blessed for you shall be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. Notice the issue of corporate responsibility here. In verse 9, we're told the whole nation is cursed because of this area of disobedience. But here in verse 12, we see that the converse as well, that if they obey, the whole land will be blessed in such a way that other nations take notice. The fact is that during the time of Malachi, the whole nation of Israel was missing out on the blessing of God because they were robbing him of his tithes and offerings. What about the church today? Statistics tell us that only a small percentage of those who belong to the church of Jesus Christ are faithful to tithe. Probably more than 90% of Christ's church is robbing God. Do you think 90% of us stealing from God doesn't have some kind of negative corporate effect? Why are we less and less a delightful land? Why does it almost seem like the church is cursed? Let's think about our own nation for a minute. How blessed would the American church be if all Christians tithe, how delightful might our land be if all Christians gave their 10% back to God? What kind of difference might the church be able to make in the land where we live? Someone says, well, I don't trust my church to really use it to be a blessing for the kingdom of God on earth. To that, I would say, find a new church. But back to the positive, I mean, can you imagine? Let's think practically first, and then we'll think spiritually. Practically, what if all Christians tithed? <clears throat> Can you imagine what we could do? Think of the missionaries we could fund. We could virtually end world hunger in the name of Christ. By the way, this church, everything you give here goes to those things, big time. But think how much good we could do in terms of disaster relief or orphan care. Frankly, think of the practical power that the church would have if all Christians tithed. Maybe you need to consider some math in order to grasp what I am saying. Research consistently shows that the Christian population in America gives an average of 2.5% per person. What if we all gave 10% instead? Let's just apply this to our own church budget, which is around $350,000 per year. Taking national figures, if our church only gives an average of 2.5% per person, and we were to increase that to the 10%, which God has commanded, our budget would go all the way up to $1.4 million. How many of you think we could do some good things with that money? Now imagine this happening in every American church. If Christians stopped robbing God, we could absolutely change the world and put an end to a hefty amount of pain and suffering on this planet. Now, let me pause and say that from what I can see, our church has a lot more tithers than the average church. Still, think what we could do. 
And even though I've made this point about the practical power of money, I do not believe those benefits would compare with the spiritual benefits. What if the American church stopped robbing God? What if Go Church stopped robbing God? What if we returned to God and He returned to us? See, in this text, tithing is the first step toward revival or the return of God to His people. According to who? Malachi? No, not actually. This is a quotation of God Himself. Remember? Malachi is only the messenger writing it down. When God's people asked, how can we return to you? What was the first thing the Lord said? Will a man rob God? Could it be that the first step toward corporate spiritual renewal has to do with money? Could it be that this is true in filthy rich America? Perhaps more even than any other place in the world? We've been so blessed by God, have we not? If you don't realize how blessed even our poor people are, come along on a mission trip with me sometime. We are all wealthy. And yet, now, we rob God. Is it any wonder that it almost feels like the church is cursed and that the blessings of God on our land are fewer? Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Moving quickly, God's second answer to the question, how shall we return, is this. Stop speaking against me. From verse 13, your words have been arrogant against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God, and what profit is it that we have kept his charge and that we have walked in mourning before the Lord of hosts? So now we call the arrogant blessed. Not only are the doers of wickedness built up, but they also test God and escape. Remember just a few verses earlier, the people had thundered, where is the God of justice? Remember from last week? And here they're basically still asking the same question, even after God had said, look, if you'll return to me, I'll return to you. They're still thinking God is the one not coming through. They simply cannot see that they are the ones who have strayed. Now, let's be honest. We are just like them, at least sometimes. And just like them, most of us here today would probably say back to God, what have I spoken against you? You who consider yourselves to be strong Christians in this room are sitting there right now and thinking, I'm not aware of speaking against God, right? But like his remnant in Judah, even today, I believe God would remind us of certain things that we have said. Have you never questioned why Jesus has not yet returned after 2,000 years? Does this not sometimes shake your faith, if you're honest? I mean, how long before we start to wonder if He's really coming? They all said it would be soon. When will God come down and end the suffering on this planet? Have you never said, I wish God would just do an undeniable miracle so all my friends and families would believe? Or haven't you pondered, why does God let belligerent atheists curse His name on social media, and not strike them dead? Or why doesn't God show up and prove Himself? If you're old, like me, you remember watching the news on the day of the 9-11 attacks. Or you remember when a tsunami wiped out like a million people in Asia, something like 15 years ago or so. Or way back when COVID (laughs) and the response to it basically ruined everything. Or now there's the war in Ukraine, which could escalate to a third world war. Or pick a large-scale tragedy that you can remember. 
And did you not ask why God allowed it to happen? Have you never said, why doesn't God fix this or stop that? Have you never uttered the words, this is not fair, God? And hook back into the context, haven't you also wondered why most extremely rich people are not involved in a church and certainly do not tithe? In fact, it would seem that none of the richest people on earth are following Jesus. I mean, really, have you ever thought about that? I don't know of a billionaire who bears the marks of Christ. Maybe there, maybe there are a few, but I haven't personally observed a billionaire or know about a billionaire who sold out to Jesus. Looking at the list recently, apparently none of the top 10 richest people in the world are Christian, even by confession. There's no way to be sure, of course, but nobody is outspoken about it. That's clear. Many are openly atheistic, such as Bill Gates and Warren Buffett. By the way, according to Forbes, as of 2016, 8 of 10 of the richest people on the planet are Americans. And that's been about the same number for decades. We are the richest country on earth. Personally, I think being a billionaire would be a curse. But that's another subject. There are plenty of multimillionaires in this town. But I don't know if we have any in this church. Why doesn't God give us some? Preferably tithers. I mean, I'd love to build a church building ASAP and uh, to hear, to have awesome stuff going on it that would, in it that would advance God's kingdom and bless our community. So why doesn't God make our tithers into billionaires? Why do the wicked prosper? I mean, that's what they were saying in Judah, right? How do these wealthy people get by with saying God doesn't even exist? and still have billions of dollars and tons of power? Why doesn't God do something to show Himself? Why does He let Facebook and Google and Amazon and Apple and Microsoft all be led by atheists? Why does He let them have so much power and control? Those are the kinds of questions that we are asking, but none of us has ever had any of those questions come out of our mouths, I'm sure, right? And what does God say about our questions? Well, folks, He says, you have been speaking arrogantly against me. Sometimes we decide how it is that God should bless us, and we get very, very specific. You wanted that new job, but you didn't get it. And frankly, during the process when they were deciding, you were practically perfect, you know, just to earn God's favor. You didn't even practice your secret sins during that time, and you still didn't get the job. Or maybe you were really, really good and super spiritual during the time when you were praying for someone to be healed, and yet they weren't healed. What's the point of obedience? What's the point of prayer if I'm not going to get what I ask for? And along with Judah, we say it is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept His charge? I'm old enough now that I've seen some of the dearest saints I've ever known get sick, suffer, and die. Why? Why him or her? Why did there have to be suffering? Are you so sure that you never speak against God? Think about this. Do you never say, why does God let millions of babies be killed in the womb? You never try to tell God what He should do or even threaten Him that if He doesn't, you will. 
Why are the arrogant blessed? Why are doers of wickedness allowed to become president of the United States? Over and over again. Oops. But the point is, who are we really questioning with all of this? Who is in control? Who are we really speaking against? Have you heard the argument that since, according to the Bible, God places people in positions of power, we don't need to spend our lives trying to get a win for our guy or spend any time speaking against the other guy? You know what? That's an interesting point. But more importantly, have you considered the implications throughout history? So Caesar was in power when Jesus was crucified, and his emissary, Pilate, gave the order. What order? The order that the God who created the universe and placed those Romans in power in the first place would torture him to death on a cross. Chew on that one for a while. God is sovereign. That means he's in control of the things he decides to control. You can quote me on that definition of sovereignty if you want. He, de- he is in control of the things he decides to control. And overall, he controls the end of the story. Now, I don't believe God hyper-controls everything, and I do not believe God ever causes evil. However, he does allow evil to happen through the choices of others, for now. But still, if God stops some evil, why not all of it? If he's going to stop all evil someday, why not now? Look, the point is that if you don't find yourself wanting to speak against God, it may be because you have not thought through the implications of His sovereignty. But after you've thought through it, and maybe even hollered at God for a while, what you'll need to do is stop being so arrogant, thinking you know what is best, and to put your complete trust in Him and His plan instead. Return to Him, and He will return to you. According to Scripture, at the very least, God allowed both Donald Trump and Joe Biden to be president of the United States. Honestly, the Bible says he put them in place. How many times have you railed against one or the other? Probably no more than I have. Guilty. What if this is not right? What if we are arrogant and wrong with some of the things we say? Would you at least consider that maybe it is possible that you have spoken against God without realizing it? John Calvin said, God puts evil people in power when he is ready to judge a nation. As you probably know, I don't agree with everything Mr. Calvin said. But after some thought, I have to concur with him that this pattern is very clear in Scripture. This very thing happened over and over in the Bible. When God is ready to pour out judgment and wrath on a nation, he allows an evil ruler to come to power. Sobering thoughts, isn't it? Look at the fall of Israel, of Judah, of Egypt, of Rome, of Nazi Germany. An evil king or leader comes to power, sometimes several in a row, and then eventually the nation is judged by God. By the way, Egypt basically never recovered after the plagues. And after Pharaoh and his armies were drowned in the Red Sea, the Bible says God hardened Pharaoh's heart because he wanted to show his power in saving his people and also in judging Egypt. God is in control. As Paul said, who can know the mind of God? Who can understand his ways? And look, I don't know where the line is on our complaining and fretting about bad things that happen. 
But I'm just trying to think through this. And I'm thinking that if God is sovereign and all we ever do is gripe about everything all the time, what if some of the time God is taking it personally? Isn't that exactly what happened with this remnant of Judah? They didn't think they were speaking against God, but they were sure speaking against a lot of other things, including their governors, by the way. And God says, in your arrogance, you are speaking against me. This comes in response to the question, how shall we return? So God is basically saying that if they want to return to him, they need to shut up with their whining and their complaining. By the way, I get more passionate when I need to hear it. I do. If if I get all riled up, it's not because I'm thinking so bad about you. It's because I'm thinking about, I need to hear this. They're whining and they're complaining about the world, which is actually in his hands. I really think there's some relevant truth for all of us in here somewhere. I mean, you know, don't overreact. I'm not saying, I'm certainly not telling you not to vote since God is in control. Or to never speak up for truth or that we can't ever point out when a leader is wrong. I'm just saying that that maybe we should put a check you know, a throttle or something on our mouths and make sure that the stuff that's coming out doesn't wind up being arrogance against God and His plan. We need to be careful at least, right? And believe me, I'm talking to myself as much as any other person. Maybe my constant criticism, the way things are on this earth, sometimes actually offends a sovereign God. That's what I learned from Scripture this week, and it is convicting, I assure you. You know what the real issue is in what we're saying sometimes? Lack of faith. We simply don't trust God's sovereign plan. He just won't get with our program, you know? Where is the God of justice? Now, think about this. Did the heroes of our faith spend their words complaining about the state of the world? Did they? What did the Apostle John say from exile? Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. What did James say? In danger of losing his head, in danger of his, for his life the whole time. But what did he say? Keep yourself unstained by the world. What did the Apostle Paul say? Be in the world, but not of it. None of them spent a lot of time complaining about the last Caesar or even how many Christians he had murdered that month. They just waited on God's rescue and his timing, and they served him faithfully while they waited Yes, fellow Christian, I'm afraid we have been speaking against God without realizing it. We have been arrogant. We are so arrogant. We're know-it-alls. We got all the information. We have more information at our fingertips than anybody's ever had in the history of the world. And we're the dumbest people in the history of the world. Okay, (laughs) maybe we're the most unwise people, I think, sometimes. We've been arrogant. We think we know everything and how everything should be, what needs to be fixed. But in reality, I have no clue what God is doing in this world right now or how to fix it. And basically, in all my whining, I'm not trusting the Lord to do what He has promised to do. How shall I return to God? Maybe I just need to stop complaining so much. Anybody? Anybody else? Anybody? Anybody? Okay. I'm going to close right here today. This has been only half a sermon. 
I said, it was pretty long for half a sermon. Well, that's be glad that it was half. <laughs> In other words, you've heard half of what it means to return to God, half of what this passage has to teach us about doing so. Next week, we'll unpack the rest of this passage and see two more ways that we need to return to God so that he can return to us. Would you pray with me? Father, I am convicted, um, and I pray that you would help us to, I guess, find our way back to you. Thank you for the guidance and the lessons in this text. People really haven't changed that much. Your people, we still have the same problems as your people, um, whatever, about 2,500 years ago. So, help us, Lord. God, this has been a message for believers for sure today, but I ask you now for anyone in this room who's never really put their trust in Jesus Christ that they would begin to understand that, that there's a response that's required, that you've reached out to us, that you've come here and you've died on a cross for our sins, that you're offering us the greatest gift, the gift of peace with you, forgiveness of our sins, it's all being offered to us, but that we have to respond in faith to receive it. And even though today I haven't even gone over any of that, Lord, maybe somebody that's been here, somebody they've, they've been listening, you've been speaking, maybe somebody makes that decision today. Lord, just today I'm, I'm going to start really, I want Jesus to be my Savior. Maybe somebody today receives your Holy Spirit by faith through putting their faith in Jesus Christ as Savior. Lord, whether that's today or it's been recent, I hope you'll help that person to let us know as a church so we can talk about next steps and just be a church for them. Thank you for all that you're doing. Thank you for this youth group that's visiting. Thank you for our youth group that's out doing their retreat. Bless them all. Let them know that you're there. Speak to their hearts. Give them what they need to become strong followers of Jesus in a world that frankly hates them and more all the time. Give us all the strength, Lord. We need your spirit to rise up within us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website, www.gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.